Craig James was a college football analyst with Fox Sports, but recently he was terminated from his job. Craig's fireable offense came in a public debate last fall when he made an unsuccessful bid for the United States Senate. In one exchange during the debate, he made this comment. He said that homosexuals would answer to the Lord for their actions. He referred to homosexuality as a choice. Now, there's speculation that other issues were involved in his ouster. But the explanation that Fox Sports conveyed to the public were Craig's comments on homosexuality. Evidently, the network assumed the reason that would best resonate among its viewers for Craig's dismissal was his biblical view on homosexuality and their disapproval of that view. Fox Sports realizes the biblical perspective on sexuality is no longer the majority view of our society. You see, America is not the Christian nation we once may have been or that some people today like to posture us to be. If we define Christianity as Bible-inspired belief and behavior, then serious Christians are in the minority. Just recently, the Gallup poll reported that only one in three Americans believe that you can always take the Bible literally. Hey, if you're determined to live out a Bible-based faith in meaningful ways, you may find your journey to be a lonely one. Harvard professor Mary Ann Glinton, she notes an interesting contradiction. She says that on the one hand, social commentators insist that America is full of decent people with an inclination toward doing good. Yet on the other hand, those same commentators point out how that the abortion mentality and the divorce mentality and the porn mentality and the greed mentality have all seriously eroded the American character. Professor Glinton says that you can't have it both ways. That moral erosion doesn't produce good, decent people. That there comes a tipping point when decent people get outnumbered by those infected by the evil. Glinton says she doesn't believe that we've reached that point of no return, but we're obviously getting close. Well, I tend to disagree. I'm afraid that the numbers are no longer in favor of biblically-based moral judgments. Did you know that from 1996 to 2013, the percentage of Americans supporting same-sex marriage jumped from 27% to 54%? Today, the belief that marriage is sacred, that it should be reserved for a husband and a wife, that Western culture, the view of Western culture for the last two millenniums, Did you know that today that is a minority position? And that's not all. In our nation, its most recent election, both Washington and Colorado voted to decriminalize marijuana. In 2011, did you know the fastest-selling paperback of all time flew off the bookshelves? The novel Fifty Shades of Grey sold 70 million copies. The story's theme revolves around sexual bondage and dominance, not exactly the Bible's view of spiritual and loving and committed intimacy. 
America may have once loved the innocence of Hannah Montana, but today Uncle Sam is twerking with Miley Cyrus. Our nation's Christian heritage is fading fast. Biblical belief and behavior is no longer the norm. Novelist Walker Percy, he begins one of his stories with these words. Once upon a time, in the latter day, Christ haunted, Christ forgetting United States. That's us, the Christ forgetting United States. And I'm afraid that the latter day has become today. And yet minority status is nothing new for believers in Jesus. The very first Christians were born on the heels of the execution of their leader. People alive at the time, the leaders of the community, had hands that were guilty of the blood of Jesus. The earliest Christians were born again with a target on their backs. That remained the case throughout the much of imperial Rome. Christianity was the one intolerable religion. Over and over again, throughout history, Christians have operated as a minority in the culture. From papal feudalism, to Marxist atheism, to Islamic fundamentalism, to European secularism, serious Christians have practiced their faith without the sanction of the ruling majority. Today, in Buddhist countries, and in Hindu countries, and in Muslim countries, and in communist countries, and in post-Christian countries. Believers live and worship amidst differing levels of tolerance and persecution. But in all these places, we're outnumbered. We have a minority status. Christian missionaries to foreign fields have always understood that they function as a suspected minority. You see, for 240 years, Christians in America have been blessed to constitute the majority. And yet today, it's time to adjust. A Christian minority needs a specific mindset. And this is what we have found illustrated in the life of Daniel and his fellow Hebrews living in a pagan Babylon. Around the beginning of the 6th century B.C., the Babylonians conquered the city of Jerusalem. A small group of Hebrew royalty, young men of faith, were taken back to Babylon to serve in the Oriental court. Imagine Daniel and his friends surrounded all day long by lewd, sexually deviant idol worshipers. It was a culture shock to these Hebrews. Transitioning from Jerusalem to Babylon was like going from Bible college to Las Vegas. Virtues applauded in Jerusalem were thought to be odd and strange in Babylon. Daniel's devotion was misunderstood. His peers grew jealous. His faith was continually tested. This is what we've been studying over the last four weeks. When he was pressured by the king to compromise his beliefs, you remember Daniel, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Daniel made the decision to swim upstream. He navigated the situation and he trusted God with the outcome. Of course, when all hope of a good outcome was gone, when all navigation and negotiation had been depleted, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had a choice to make. They set their face toward the fire, and they refused to bow to anyone but God. And you remember, God's Son joined them in the furnace. We're told that all that burned off of them were the ropes that had them bound. 
When the handwriting on the wall appeared, they sent for king, for, they sent, the king sent for Daniel. And again, the old man had nerve. Daniel may have been in the minority, but he never doubted the supremacy of his God. The Most High God would judge King Belshazzar that very night. And then, of course, later when the laws were used against Daniel, again, he remained steadfast. He didn't go out looking for trouble, but when it came looking for him, he didn't back down. Daniel maintained his routine of holiness, and he saw God deliver him in an extraordinary way. An angel met Daniel in the den of lions and locked the lion's jaws. We see in so many of these stories the faith and the courage of Daniel, even in the face of a persecuting majority. But there was more to Daniel's faith than just what meets the eye. You see, he had a mindset, he had a mentality, an outlook that I believe all believers in the minority should adopt. This morning, we're going to sweep through the last six chapters of Daniel, and I'm going to pull out for you five perspectives that apply to a Christian minority. Here's the title of this final message in our series, Inside the Minority Mindset. I'm just going to lay out all five principles, and then we'll unpack them one at a time. Daniel had an overarching vision, an overwhelming introspection, an otherworldly perception, an overcoming intercession, and an out-of-this-world salvation he offered to the people around him. I realize that's a mouthful, but it sums up the mentality that Christians need when they're living in the minority. The first observation you make when you read past chapter 6 in Daniel, you go on into chapter 7, 8, and 9, is this overarching vision that God gives to Daniel. Remember, Daniel is an exile. He's a POW. He's a refugee. He's been displaced from the land of his forefathers. He would prefer to be home in Jerusalem, but he's halfway around the world in this pagan place. His world has been rocked. His life has been turned topsy-turvy, and he desperately needs to know that God is still in control. And I think to some degree, that's the purpose for these visions. God gave Daniel incredible insight into his plan for the ages. He was shown the precision of God's sovereignty. God does exactly as he pleases in human affairs. Nothing happens to God's people by accident. He proves it in these visions. At first glance, Daniel chapter 7 and 8 looks like the roster of NFL football teams. We'll find Lions and eagles, and bears, and saints, and rams. We also have several kings, or you could say chiefs, including the chief of all chiefs, God himself. In Daniel 11, there is a host of invading armies. Call them the raiders, or maybe the chargers. Daniel, though, was a devout Jew. He was a patriot. And there's an unnamed beast. This beast is dreadful and terrible, and I'm hoping it's not the Falcons. By the way, this morning's Bible study is going to end up lasting a little less than 50 minutes, which would make it a, a 49er. Yeah. 
Hey, this parade of animals that Daniel saw was the progression of mankind's self-rule. World-dominating empires that would rise in Daniel's day and even into the future. His vision doesn't climax until the end of time. Now, you remember in chapter 2, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, he saw human government in the form of a metallic man, a shiny figure, head of gold, arms of silver, a glorious statue. But you see, that was from the perspective of a pompous, prideful dictator. God sees man's attempts to rule the earth a little differently. God sees it as a beast rising from the sea. That's how God sees human government. What man sees as shiny, God sees as beastly. Well, Daniel, he saw a lion, which was Babylon, and a bear, which was the Medes and the Persians, and a leopard, which represented the Greeks. Incidentally, the leopard had wings and four heads. Alexander the Great conquered the world in lightning fast speed. In just ten years, he led the Greeks in the domination of the world. At the age of 33, he said he had no more worlds to conquer. And when Alexander died, four heads or leaders rose in his stead, just as Daniel predicted. It divided Greece into four kingdoms. The fourth beast was dreadful and terrible. It devoured the nations with iron teeth. A stealer, probably. Iron teeth. This fourth beast was the empire of Rome. Understand now, Daniel received this vision in 533 B.C. Rome didn't come on the scene until 146 B.C. Nearly 400 years later, Daniel is seeing way down the road here. In fact, this last beast speaks of more than just Rome. He sees ten horns and then a little horn. Here, it's a man speaking pompous words. This little horn is synonymous with the coming emperor known as the Antichrist. Daniel gets his panoramic view of human history. And then he says in response, in chapter 7, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel is saying that in the end, in the end of it all, the Son of Man or our Lord Jesus himself will prevail. He will appear before the Ancient of Days and God will give him the kingdom. The kingdom that's eternal is the kingdom of Jesus. God elaborates on this to Daniel in verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. You see, this is what Daniel needed to hear. In fact, this is what people of faith who live in the minority need to grasp. Though we're currently outnumbered, though the momentum is going against us, though the winds of culture blow contrary, don't lose heart. For Jesus and His kingdom will prevail, and He will give it to those who follow Him. And understand, these prophecies 
aren't just some vague hope or generic predictions. They're precise. God is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. He knows the end from the beginning. Daniel calls him the ancient of days, but he also rules the future. Daniel's visions are so precise that in chapter 9, he predicts the exact day that Jesus rode his donkey down the mountain into the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 11 gives a play-by-play of the Greek wars that occurred between the Testaments and their impact on Israel. And as you read it, it's like you're reading history, but realize it was written 300 years before the events occurred. You see, it was God's way of assuring a small little band of believers in Babylon that hope was not lost, that he was still in control. In the 5th century A.D., when Christian Rome fell to the Goths and the Vandals, Christians didn't know how to react. Rome had been the center of Christianity. It was the seat of the Pope and the church. For Rome to fall to the barbarians, people thought, was this the defeat of Christianity? Christians were in a panic. They were in turmoil. They were confused. At that time, Augustine addressed the fall of Rome in a book that he entitled, The City of God. And in his book, he differentiated between the city of man and the city of God. He said that Rome was the city of man. Despite its Christian heritage, and its cathedrals, and its clergy, and its shrines, and its trappings, it was still just an earthly city contaminated by man's sin. But Christianity itself, the living Lord Jesus, the moving, breathing Spirit of God in the world today is the city of God. The church in the city of God isn't confined to a physical city. It's spiritual. It lives on in the hearts of believers who are united in faith and in their allegiance to Jesus. He said that the city of man had fallen, but the city of God is eternal. And I think this lesson could also be applied to America today. I'm sure it's shocking to hear someone like me say that America is no longer a Christian country. For some of us, that sounds unpatriotic, even treasonous. I mean, you're proud of America's glorious past and its Christian foundations. The faith of the pilgrims. The faith of the framers of our Constitution. The two great awakenings. The missionary expansion launched from our shores. We all want to hold on to that legacy. But we need to understand that the political apparatus called America is the city of man. Human entities come and go, even those once shaped and used by God. Don't be confused. The city of God has always been bigger than America. Am I writing America's obituary? Not hardly. I pray for my country that God will shake us and wake us spiritually to bring us back to Jesus and faith in Christ. But hey, I'm under no illusion. God isn't dressed in red, white, and blue. The American flag doesn't fly over the pearly gates in heaven. God is on our side only when America deliberately chooses to be on His side. You see, the city of God is growing in the world today. But in third world countries, in Africa, in Latin America, in Korea. Did you know that today South Korea is sending missionaries to evangelize America? The white man is no longer the missionary. The third world sees us as a pagan nation. 
Here's my point. A Christian minority has an overarching vision. We realize that God's kingdom, the city of God, is bigger than any one nation or one race. And in the end, only God's kingdom and His people will prevail. But notice another element here to the mindset needed by a Christian minority. Daniel responds to these mind-boggling visions with an overwhelming introspection. In other words, he takes a deep, long look at himself and his people. Realize, one of Daniel's contemporaries was the prophet Jeremiah. While Daniel was in Babylon, Jeremiah was back in Jerusalem. And Daniel read Jeremiah, we know. Specifically, he read chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. And you know what? I bet you've read these verses too. Because these verses adorn more Christian plaques and coffee cups and ornamental keepsakes than almost any other. You've heard verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But it was actually the preceding verse, verse 10, that caught Daniel's eye. It says, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. In other words, the Hebrews would remain in Babylon for 70 years. Well, if you look at chapter 9, verse 1, you find that it identifies the time of Daniel's writing. It's the year 535 B.C., And the 70 years of captivity is up. Daniel realizes that the time has come. Their sentence has been served and the Jews are about to return to their land. But there's one bit of unfinished business. The people of Israel, they still owe God an apology. Daniel knows it will do them no good to return to a holy land without a holy heart. Israel needs to repent and turn from their sin before they return to their land. I've heard it said, most people would learn from their mistakes if they just admitted that they had made any. In Daniel 9, he confesses both his sins and the sins of the nation. And he prays one of the most humble and heartfelt prayers recorded in Scripture. You know, Psalm 51 verse 17 tells us, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, you don't find too much brokenness among the majority. Haughtiness is often the attitude among the majority. But the minority, what comes with minority status is a, is a, humi- a humility and a brokenness. That's beautiful to God that he doesn't despise. Here Daniel shows a broken and a contrite heart. Notice in chapter 9 verse 5. Notice he cries out. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your your judgments. Man, you, you understand the meaning of those words and you realize Daniel lets it all hang out. There's no cover-up here. The word sin means to miss the mark, to fail, to come short. Iniquity means warped, perverted. Wickedly is a deliberate defiance. Rebel means hatred for authority. Departing means to thumb your nose in God's face and just ignore what He says. And Daniel says, we've done it all, man. 
We've blown it. We're warped and defiant. And we hate God's authority. And we've ignored God like some pompous, stuck-up little brat. And this is from Daniel, the pick of the litter. I mean, the man with the godly resume. Not a single evil gets blamed on Daniel. And yet, in his heart of hearts, he knows that he too has sinned along with the rest of his people. And he confesses it. In verse 8, he confesses on behalf of kings and princes and fathers, but then he adds, we, not just them, but we have sinned against you. I I like the summary, this summary of verses 8 and 9. Shame belongs to us, but mercy and forgiveness belongs to God. Boy, isn't that true? It could be said of us, shame belongs to us, Mercy and forgiveness belongs to God. Reminds me of the firefighter who was visiting the school. He was explaining to the first grade class what to do in case of a fire. He said, first, you go to the door and you feel if it's hot. Second, you drop to your knees. And then he asked the class, he says, does anyone know why you drop to your knees? One little boy answered, sure, to ask God to get you out of the mess that you're in. Hey, maybe the mess that you're in today is the direct result of your sin and your stubbornness. The only real way out is to drop to your knees. Daniel goes on to recount some history here. He says, all the trouble that's come upon Israel had been predicted by the law of Moses. That God warned them of their calamity. Daniel prays for a new start in verse 17. And then he prays for mercy in verse 18. He says, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Neither Daniel, nor Israel, nor you, nor I deserve God's mercy. Hey, but it wouldn't be mercy if we deserved it. All that Daniel asks is based on not on what he's earned, not on what he deserves, but he bases all his requests on God's great mercies, especially those mercies demonstrated in his son Jesus. Mark Twain once wrote, Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Here's a great way to define Christianity. Christians are folks who expect to be judged on mercy, not merit. And notice the three exclamations that come at the end of Daniel's prayer. The exclamation points. Verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. Daniel put his heart into this prayer. He didn't just say prayers. He prayed prayers. You see, when Christians are in the majority and there's money and there's clout at their disposal and advances come easy and victories are there, they don't always feel the necessity to pray and confess their sins. But when Christians are in the minority, it creates the opposite attitude. A broken and a contrite heart is a must. Believers in the minority want to make sure that there's nothing in their life blocking or impeding God's blessing. It prompts an overwhelming introspection. 
And then the third attitude I'd identify as part of a minority mindset is an otherworldly perception. You see, Daniel was acutely attuned to the spiritual realm around him. In chapter 6, when King Darius came to the lion's den to check on his friend, Daniel told him, My God has sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. Daniel doesn't say he saw the angel, but he knew that an angel was on the scene. And this wasn't Daniel's only brush with an angel. In chapter 8, Daniel was confronted by the angel Gabriel. Still another angel appears to Daniel in chapter 10. Daniel, you see, he just had a sensitivity to spiritual realities. Whether it was dreams or interpretations or visions, Daniel seemed to travel in the realm of the supernatural. Babylon was one of the most impressive physical cities in the ancient world. From its red brick pavement to its colossal walls to its extravagant palaces and its hanging gardens. And yet Daniel lived in two worlds. Daniel had his feet firmly on the ground in Babylon. He was a government diplomat. He was a get-her-done kind of guy. He was an administrator and a very capable one at that. In fact, there were times when he occupied the highest seats of government. And yet this man prayed regularly. Remember, he prayed three times a day. He made appointments with God that he refused to break, even to save his own skin. And God rewarded Daniel by revealing to him divine secrets and bestowing upon him visions and giving him interpretations. Obviously, there was a rare depth to Daniel. I think it was cultivated during his times of prayer. He took stuff to heart. The spiritual visions that he saw even affected him physically. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 28, after one of his visions, he says, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. After his vision in chapter 8, he writes, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. What he saw spiritually shook him up physically. You know, I think it's safe to say that God speaks to the person who cares. Let me say that again. God speaks to the person who cares. What if I had a great joke? I mean, what if I had a great joke? And I wanted to tell it. Who do you think I'd go to? The vast majority of you who think my jokes are corny anyway? Or to the rare few of you who honestly laugh when I tell a joke. I would take my joke to the few of you who always laugh. And this is how God rolls. He speaks to the person who wants to hear. He speaks to the person who listens, who's listening to Him, who loves His Word, who wants to know His heart. The Daniels of this world seek God, but more importantly, I believe God seeks out the Daniels of this world. You know, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 conveys a truth that I believe Daniel knew very well. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, when Christians constitute a majority, and when they can throw their weight around, they tend to forget this truth. 
They think the battle will be won at City Hall or in the election booth or in the court system or on the sidewalk or through brilliant logic or through clever persuasion or through political maneuvering. We forget that the battle we fight is spiritual. Hey, you need to understand the good news of Jesus Christ is appealing. It's irresistible. Most people unshackled from their spiritual blunders would run to the truth like a thirsty person to a spring of water. But it's Satan that keeps them closed and opposed and resistant. This is why our battle is against him and his demons. No, no country would ever engage in nuclear war using conventional weapons. And for the same reasons, we shouldn't fight spiritual battles with earthly techniques. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Paul is adamant, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. If there's a person you want to reach, you want to see them come to Christ, you want to see their heart touched, you don't fight spiritual battles with carnal weapons. You need to pray for that person. Spiritual fights against spiritual foes are won with spiritual firepower. And you're far more aware of this when you're in the minority, when there is no manpower at your disposal or money or media or whatever. When all you can do is pray, then suddenly you've done what's been most strategic all along. This is certainly what Daniel experienced. He had an otherworldly perception that led him to an overcoming intercession. Another aspect of this minority mindset Look at the bizarre story we find in chapter 10. At the end of chapter 9, God makes some amazing promises to Daniel and the Jewish people about their future and their hope. He says that 490 years has been set for Israel to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, among many other blessings. Daniel was excited about the prospects of these new possibilities. But the time frame was discouraging. 490 years? Man, that's a long, long time. And Daniel groans in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, the message was true, but the appointed time was long. And so in verse 2, he takes his concern to God. He prays. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. He didn't even take a bath. Till three whole weeks were fulfilled. He was so concerned about this, he went to God in prayer. And for three weeks, Daniel sought the Lord. No trips to Golden Corral. No snacks. For 21 days, he grieved for himself and his people. He didn't even bathe. If it were me... Three weeks without a shower? I'd be ripe. Here's here's my wife. I would reek to high heaven. But maybe that's what Daniel wanted. Maybe he wanted to catch the attention of high heaven. And Daniel wasn't disappointed. For on the 21st day, he saw a vision of a man, a glorious man, probably an angel. He was wearing a golden belt, and his face was bright like lightning, and his eyes were like torches of fire. 
and his arms and feet like polished brass. Quite a dude. We're told in verse 9 of chapter 10, While I heard the sound of his words, I was in deep sleep on my face, and my face to the ground. Daniel must have fainted and passed out. Verse 10, Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. He's on all fours now, but he's still trembling. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. He's gone from trembling on all fours to now standing and trembling. And then verse 12, then he said to me, Do not fear, do not fear, Daniel, For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Notice, why did this angel come to Daniel? It was due to Daniel's words. You need to understand, it was Daniel's prayer that moved heaven itself. Don't you think your prayers are meaningless? Or that God lures us to pray just to keep us out of trouble? Or just so we'll spend time with Him? There's more to it than that. Prayer is effectual and it's powerful. Prayer gets stuff done. God hears our prayers and He responds to our prayers. It was because of His words, His prayer, that the angel visited Daniel. It's been said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. This angel would have never showed up if Daniel had not interceded for his people and sought the Lord. And notice too, when was Daniel heard by God? On the first day he began to pray. But this is day 21. This is three weeks later. What took this angel so long? Well, he tells us in verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, obviously, the angel is not talking about Cyrus when he talks about the king of Persia. He's not talking about the earthly king of Persia. For a human being, even a mighty despot like Cyrus would be no match for an angelic creature. You remember in 2 Kings 19, a single angel wipes out an entire army. Apparently, the prince of Persia here was a demon dispatched by the devil with jurisdiction over the nation of Persia. Just as Christians have guardian angels, it seems the pagan nations have disturbing demons. I think America's demon is having a field day. When God's messenger was dispatched to Daniel, he was confronted by this prince of Persia. And a struggle ensued. It was an angelic slugfest. It was a spiritual brawl. This was MMA before MMA. A heavenly cage match. They were fighting in the spiritual octagon. And finally, on the 21st day, God sent reinforcements. The angel Michael double-teamed the prince of Persia, and Daniel's messenger was able to break through. 
Now, obviously, we don't see it. But I believe that right now, in this room, spiritual forces are slugging it out over you. They're wrestling and fighting for your attention. Demons are trying to thwart and distract you from God's Word. Angels are wanting to move you, nudge you toward God's truth and God's grace. But here's the provocative point. This spiritual battle lasted 21 days. That was the duration of Daniel's intense prayer. It's not mentioned here, but other passages teach a correlation between prayer and spiritual breakthroughs. I wonder if Daniel had stopped praying on day 3 or day 20. Would the angel have broken free and arrived on day 21? Perhaps not. Perhaps Daniel needed to pray him all the way through. One thing's for sure, prayer is a key to spiritual warfare. Your prayers are a key to spiritual warfare. Your persistent prayer is a key. Here in verse 19, the angel tells a depleted Daniel, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. Daniel tells us what happened next. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened. You know, prayer itself is a cage match. It's a wrestling with God. In our reaching out to God, we empty ourselves of ourselves, of our pride and our strength and our wisdom, and then in turn, God fills us up with Himself, His Spirit and fresh power and new insights. The angel who fought with the demons strengthened Daniel. I think God's people always are strengthened through prayer. Recently, I read where the Trigicom Corporation, a weapons manufacturer, supplies rifle scopes to the United States Army and Marines. In its mission statement, Trigicon says it supports biblical values and morality. In fact, up until recently, all the scopes supplied to the U.S. Armed Forces had a code embedded behind the scope serial number. Notice the last six digits. JN8 colon 12 or John chapter 8 verse 12. The verse reads, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. This caused caused Trajicon's rifles to get dubbed the Jesus rifles. Of course, this created all kinds of a stir among opponents of Christianity. They accused the U.S. military of endorsing religion, of giving preference to Christianity. Well, I'm sorry. You've got to draw the line somewhere. And if I'm in battle, and I'm being shot at, and I need to shoot back, I want a rifle dedicated to Jesus. I'm sorry. I, that's what I want. Actually, every believer does have a Jesus rifle. It's been issued to us by our commander in heaven. It's called prayer. And with that rifle, you can empty a magazine of spiritual ammo exactly where you're aiming. You can touch lives and soften hearts and speak truth and sow love. Prayer is the ultimate Jesus rifle. Ready, aim, fire. And finally, with an overarching vision... In an overwhelming introspection, in an otherworldly perception, in an overcoming intercession, there's one final facet 
to this mindset of a Christian minority, we offer an out-of-this-world salvation. Notice in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. I'll put, I'll put it on the screen. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Sounds like a description of Daniel himself, doesn't it? His life shined like a twinkling star against a thick night sky. God's wisdom made Daniel a star. He shined in a pagan land, and it gave him opportunities to turn the heart of the king, as well as many other hearts, back to the Lord. Hey, whether Christians find themselves in the majority or in the minority, this is our ultimate mission. Hey, we want to go to heaven, and we want to take someone else with us. Isn't that your desire? Sadly, there have been times in history when Christians in the majority have tried to pressure the heathen around them to put their faith in Christ. Man, this is probably the most unchristian act a person can be guilty of doing. Jesus never forced anyone, anyone to ever follow Him. His overtures were always full of love and compassion. Folks forsook all and radically followed Jesus, not because they had to, but in light of His love and truth and beauty, it was the only sensible response. And today, Jesus adds to his kingdom by wooing folks through our witness. You know, some of us grew up hoping to be a star. I wanted to play for the Braves. That didn't work out. Maybe you hoped to be a star in sports or in the movies or in music. But it never happened. Well, it can now. You can be a star in God's kingdom by shining his light and by turning many to righteousness. I've heard it put, it's easier to curse the darkness than it is to light a candle. I think the tendency of a Christian minority is to mourn our losses and succumb to fear and point at the wickedness going on around us. But Jesus says no one lights a candle and hides it under a basket. You put it on a lamp so all will see. Our job is not to curse the darkness, but it's to light a candle and set it out and shine brightly for the world around us. This was the life that Daniel lived in one of the darkest places in history. And this is the life that you and I need to live. Let's shine His light and offer God's great salvation to others. Well, here's the mindset of a Christian minority. We need an overarching vision. We need to remember that God is in control. We need an overwhelming introspection. We need to search our own hearts. We need an otherworldly perception because the real battle, the real battle is not with the, the forces around us. It's with the spiritual forces that work among us. And we need an overcoming intercession. We need to remember that our prayers matter. That even though we're a minority, even though we're outnumbered, we have supernatural weapons at our disposal. And we need to let the world know, hey, that... There's an out-of-this-world salvation that they can have through Jesus Christ. Hey, let's dare to be a Daniel, and let's all shine like stars.